if you need to travel somewhere that you've, you've never gone, some different city in some different state, you've never been there, as long as you have an address, you're probably okay. You'll probably get there just fine. For most of us, we'll get out our phone, we'll tell our phone the address, and the GPS function will, will tell us when to turn, where to go, and we'll be fine. Now, my dad, on the other hand, would much rather pull out one of these. The Rand McNally Road Atlas, which he still keeps in his vehicle. He just turned 80 years young, and he much prefers a paper map. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's what he's more comfortable with. And he doesn't, he doesn't berate the rest of us for using our phones. Right? He, he would never say something like, why do we even have paper maps if you guys weren't going to use them? Or he wouldn't say, your phone could never get you where you want to go unless you use the old school paper, paper map also. That would be ridiculous. It would be just as ridiculous if I said to my dad, we never should have had paper maps to begin with. They didn't serve a purpose ever. Well, of course they did. In some ways, that's a little bit, if we don't press that illustration too far, it's a little bit like a debate that has to be going on in the region of Galatia as Paul writes his letter to the Galatian Christians there. Galatia uh, is, was, a, was a region of the world in what is today Turkey. The Apostle Paul traveled there during his first missionary journey. He planted churches with the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means he traveled around, he met with people, and he told them, you can be justified by God. You can be declared righteous, good enough by the God of the universe if you believe that he sent his son to be cursed instead of you. Paul's message was one of justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone. That was Paul's message. But since Paul left, some false teachers have showed up. Some, some Jewish legalists, some Judaizers. And, and legalism is the idea that my position with God, my righteousness before God is either established or it's maintained based on what I do, on things I do or don't do. And these men, they sort of say, no, you still have to use the paper map of the law or you won't get where you need to go. They teach, yes, you have to believe in Jesus Christ, but you must also do the law. They teach, it sounds very similar to what Paul teaches. They teach, you must believe in Jesus Christ and obey, and then from that combination, righteousness will be the result from God. Paul teaches, you believe in Jesus Christ, that results in righteousness from God, and then you will obey. Those sound similar. 
Paul says they're not similar. That's the debate. And it leads to a very logical question from Paul's opponents in Galatia. It's, then why would God give us the law in the first place? That's the question we're going to answer this morning. To get us caught up to speed in Paul's train of thought, when I was studying for this sermon, a guy named Timothy George, uh, in his commentary on Galatians, he wrote uh, a little paragraph that summarizes what Paul has been saying for the past, for us, three or four weeks. We're just going to read that just to get us caught up to speed. I want to read that with you. I just thought it was so good. I want to share it with you. So here's him paraphrasing Paul leading up to where we got today. Here's what Paul's been saying. Everyone who has been declared righteous before God, Jews and Gentiles alike, has come into this relationship through faith in Jesus Christ and not by observing the law. Even you Galatians, though you may have been hoodwinked about this, you have to admit that you received the Holy Spirit and witnessed His miracle, miraculous works through the hearing of faith, not by the works of the law. You want chapter and verse that proves this? Consider Genesis 15, 6, which says, Abraham believed God and was justified by faith. Furthermore, the law imposes a curse on everyone who does not obey it perfectly, which is to say everyone. Why else did Christ die except to redeem us from the curse of the law. Don't think for a minute that the law, which was given centuries after Abraham anyway, can alter God's original promise to Abraham. No. You have to make a choice. You are saved either by law or promise. Works or faith. Merit or grace. We pick up on that line of thought this morning where Paul is going to ask and answer two questions. In Galatians chapter 3, we're going to read just verses 19 through 25 this morning, where Paul is going to talk about the purpose, the function of the law from sort of the big picture of God's purposes in redeeming humankind. Galatians three nineteen. here comes the first question. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions. Having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the Scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore the law has become our tutor, or our guardian, to, to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. All right, Paul, main thing he's doing is, at, is answering this question, which is, which is an objection from his opponents in and around Galatia. 
And the question is this, why did God give us the law if he wasn't going to use it? If we're not supposed to use it, why did he give us the law in the first place? Verses 19 and 20 is where Paul, the main idea of his answer to that question. There's some difficult things in today's passage. I'm going to start with one of them. I, I want to, the first thing I want to talk about with this verse has to do with Paul throwing in this little discussion of angels. I want to start there not because it's the most important. It's not. But I think this is a focus sucker, which is what I call something in a, in a verse of the Scripture that just kind of sucks all your focus to that and your brain can't move on until you get those questions answered. Um, Paul says here that the law was somehow administered brought that angels played some role in God giving the law to to Moses who then gave it to Israel I want to sort of get this out of the way here's where this comes from there's one verse in the Old Testament law in the book of Deuteronomy at the very end of the law Moses writes a poem he writes several of them and poetically Moses writes this. This is Deuteronomy 33, 2. He says, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned on them from Seir. He shone forth from Mount Paran, and he came in the midst of 10,000 holy ones. And his right hand there was flashing lightning. From that verse grew this rich Jewish tradition that angels played some role in God giving the law to people. What that role was or was not, I have no idea. That's just where this comes from. Whether Paul is just mentioning the tradition they all share, I don't know. I'll just tell you, that's where it came from. It doesn't affect Paul's argument at all. Now we can move on to answering the actual question at hand. Why did God give us the law? If what you're saying is true, Paul, that our justification before God comes by faith alone, not from the works of the law, then why did God give us the law? Shortest answer is underlined on the screen. It was given because of transgressions. God gave people the law because people are sinners. It's really important to understand. The purpose of the law was never this. God did not give people the law so that they could avoid becoming sinners. That's not true, because that ship had sailed, long sailed. God gave the law because people are sinners. And there's two reasons, probably more than that, but there's two reasons I want to share with you why that statement is true. One is sort of a local reason just for Israel, and one is for all of mankind. First, the first reason the law was given because people are sinners is this, Israel needed a system of law if Israel was going to survive. God saved Israel out of slavery in Egypt, pulled them out of there. He's going to let them go into the promised land. But if God just says, be free and have fun, Israel, because it's a bunch of sinners just like the rest of us, would have devolved into chaos and anarchy. Just like our society would if we don't have law, order, punishment for people who commit crimes. God had promises to keep concerning Israel. 
He had to keep them a distinct and surviving nation, so he gave them a constitution, which is the law of Moses. That's one reason he gave them. Here's why you need this. You're a bunch of wicked sinners. If you don't have this, you're going to ruin yourselves. Now, there's a bigger reason for the law that that proves that this is true. The law was given because we're sinners. Mankind needed to know this truth. I want to tell you something that's true about you that you need to hear. You ready? You are way worse than you think. That's why God gave us the law. God had a special relationship with Israel. God loved Israel and he gave Israel the law to say, even this nation that knows me better than any other nation on earth, they're not righteous. They're worse than they think. Probably the the main purpose of the law is to show us we are unrighteous in the eyes of the God who gave the law. Now, if we look at the law, we will find that is true. Whether or not we choose to look at the law is a different story because it's way more comfortable to go through life ignoring what this book says sin is. If we ignore the law, It's kind of easy to come to the conclusion, I ain't that bad. I know a whole bunch of people who seem worse than I am. It's it's easy to think, I'll probably, if there's a God out there, I will probably be okay before him because I'm not all that bad. You know what makes it really hard to believe that's true? The law. The Bible. It's probably the whole point of Jesus' most famous sermon we call the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is given so that people would read it and think, I don't think I'm, I don't think I'm doing this righteousness thing. Because we're not. Looking at what God says is right and what God says is wrong makes it more likely that we will cry out for some other kind of rescue besides my own righteousness. So why did God give us the law? Paul said first, because we're all sinners. We're worse than we think. Then Paul says, the law God gave was always designed to be temporary. Israel was to live under the law for about 1,400 years. That's a long time unless you compare it to all of human history, and then it's not a very long time. There's been way more time pass since Christ was crucified and rose again than the whole time period Israel lived under the law prior to that time. It was always supposed to be temporary. Why? Because it would never get people what they needed, which is the right relationship with God. It was always supposed to be temporary, and then God says it was administered again through angels by an intermediary, and that's Moses. Angels and Moses. Paul is pointing out another difference between the law and the covenant God gave through promise, um, which is who he sent to ratify this thing. 
the law was given through apparently angels and definitely Moses. When it was time for God to ratify the promise, he sent himself. He sent Jesus Christ. That's maybe the, the, the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than Moses, greater than angels, greater than anyone else. That God sent his son to fulfill the promises. Last thing on this slide. Verse 20 is apparently difficult to understand. Here's how I know this. A guy named J.B. Lightfoot, clear back in 1896, wrote a commentary on Galatians. When he got to this verse, he said he counted 250 different interpretations of that verse. Galatians 3.20. I will now read all 250 of them so that you can pick your favorite one before we leave this morning. No, I don't think that's... I don't think that's necessary. I'll just tell you what I think this means, but understand uh, there's, there's different ideas here. Just prior to this paragraph, Paul talked about how God gave his promises to Abraham and they were unconditional promises. You want to be in a covenant with God where his promises are unconditional, meaning you can't mess them up. Here's why that's important. If you can mess them up, you already have. And then you will. The law was this temporary covenant between God and His one special people, Israel. And it was not unconditional. It was very much conditional. Israel had to hold up their end of the bargain. And they couldn't. God gave the law to show everyone you can't either. You do not want to be in a relationship with God where if you don't hold up your end of the bargain, God's going to be done with you. Because if you're in that bargain, the law tells you God's done with you. But he's not. Because through faith in Jesus Christ, the only responsible party in your salvation is God. And that's great news. So Paul has said so far, why, why did God give the law if he wasn't going to use it? No, it, it served its purpose. It shows people how sinful they are. It kept Israel a distinct nation. It shows the rest of the world how wicked we are and that we need a Savior. Now Paul asks a second and a related question in verse 21. Well, so then is the law opposed to grace? Is the law opposed to the promises of God? Paul answers emphatically, may it never be, or absolutely not, or no chance. I would summarize Paul's argument in the rest of verse 21 this way. God wants to give life. God wants to give people eternal life. But people don't want to receive a gift of eternal life. People want to deserve eternal life. People want to be able to say they have earned eternal life. God gave people the law to show them they can't. If there was a law that had been given that was able to give life, then you could get righteousness through the law. But the main purpose of the law was to show you, you can't. We're way worse than we think. And in verse 22, Paul says, 
the written commands of God imprison us, confine us, shut us all up under the curses listed in the law. The law says, keep all of the words of this law, you get blessed. Break any of them and you get cursed. If we if we are living, trying to live in an agreement with God where if I'm good, God will bless me, we are actually imprisoned by the curses of the law. You know, Paul tells a personal story about the moment he realized this was true, not in the book of Galatians, but in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 7, Paul says, like I was reading something one day that I'd known my entire life and suddenly it hit me different. You see, Paul, as a Pharisee, Paul had, had convinced himself, had deceived himself into thinking like he was killing this righteousness thing. He was good enough. God accepts me because of how well I keep the rules. And then Paul says, one day I read the 10th commandment. And Paul knew, if you break the Ten Commandments, boy, you're kind of out. You're kind of off God's team. You know what the Tenth Commandment says? It says, thou shalt not covet. You know what that means? Covet just means if you've ever seen something that's not yours, but you really wish it was, you've broken the Ten Commandments. Which means... If you ever looked at how someone else was raised and thought, how come I couldn't have been raised like that? If you've ever looked at what you think someone else's marriage is like, thought, man, I wish I had a marriage like that. You've broken the 10th commandment. If you've ever looked at Someone else's life that just hasn't had to go through what the pain that you have had to go through. You've broken the 10th commandment. Not to mention if you just look at somebody else's stuff and wish you had their stuff. You know what that teaches us? If you really think about it, not only have we broken the 10th, the 10th commandment, we don't even think it's that wrong. How many of you are thinking as I, well, of course I would think that. What could be wrong with that? It doesn't even seem wrong. And you know what? You're right. It doesn't seem wrong at all to look at someone else in a better situation and want that for yourself. There's only one thing that makes it wrong. You know what it is? God said it's wrong. And Paul says in Romans 7, when he realized he was a coveter. He was covetous. Paul said, I died. I, I realized I can't do this thing. That's what the law is for. The law is a gift from God to us. It says, I love you. Like, I want to be in a right relationship with you, but if you think I'm going to be in a right relationship with you because of your goodness, read this. It's not that just that you won't, it's that you can't. 
I gave you this because you're a broken sinner. The reason we sin is because we were already sinners. And it makes it more likely that be either because of the faithfulness of Christ or because of faith in Christ, those who believe can be released from the curse of the law. And now Paul's going to end with his own illustration. You know, sometimes, usually when we start, I, 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 I try to share a story that will kind of relate to the passage a little bit like the paper maps and the GPS thing we did a minute ago. Paul does the same thing, only it's not that helpful because we don't know what he's talking about. We have no concept of this, but that's all right. When you, I'll help you. Verses 23, 4, and 5, Paul compares the law to something we do not have an equivalent to in our society. Paul compares the law to what is called a guardian. Your translation might call this a guardian or a tutor or a schoolmaster. And none of those things, our ideas, our concept of those things really fit. There's a Greek word here called uh, a pedagogos is what Paul says. The law was like our pedagogos. And it's not a tutor that someone goes to for extra help in a class. Not at all. Here's what a pedagogos was. Only used in wealthy families in the Greco-Roman world. And when a, when a wealthy family, let's say they had a son and, and the father's got high hopes for the son, when that son is a tiny baby, the servants, the slaves that, that take care of that child are nurses and nannies. When that son gets a little older, he graduates out of nurses and nannies and into the care of a pedagogos. And stereotypically, they're extremely harsh taskmasters. Here was their job. The master, the lord of the manor, gave his son into the care of this pedagogos, and his job was to not let that kid screw himself up too bad. They had the right to discipline as harshly as they wanted to discipline that kid, short of killing him. And again, stereotypically, they were extremely harsh. The Pideogos was always with that. He was supposed to never leave that kid. Always be there to catch him doing anything wrong and then to whack him in some way. He was always there to show the kid how wrong he was doing things. Paul says, that's the law. Paul says, do you want to be in a relationship with God? where God accepts you based on how well you are doing, well, let me introduce you to your tutor, to your pedagogos. It's the law. But the law only has one tool in its toolbox, condemnation and punishment. Theoretically, it could result in blessing if we could actually obey the law, but we can't. So the only tool the law has in its toolbox is punishment and condemnation. Paul says, why would you want to be underneath that? If you're underneath that, the only choices you have of survival are, are either the condemnation and constantly beating yourself up or self-deception and hypocrisy 
where you try to convince yourself and others you're doing it when you're not. If we were writing this today, we wouldn't use the Pythagogos because nobody knows what that is. We might say it this way. Many of you were raised in a home where you had one or two parents that you were never going to please. That you could not possibly measure up to those expectations. If you ever did do something well, there wasn't loads of encouragement and attaboys and girls. There was this air of, well, finally, you failed to screw this one up. The blind squirrel has finally found the nut. But wait till tomorrow. That's the law. That's the only thing it can do. Congratulations on not being a total failure today. But wait till tomorrow and check in again. But the law only had that power until Christ. The law only had that power until Christ. The law locks people in that system where the only thing they can learn is what a worthless failure they are until Christ. Because once someone comes to faith in Christ, we don't have to be beaten up by the bully that is the law anymore. You know why? Because in Christ, we are no longer what the law says we were. Because the righteousness we are judged by is no longer ours, it's His. We don't need the Pythagogas because we have a loving Father who sees us as righteous and perfect. But we will never run to that loving Father if we don't feel a need. We will never escape the law if we don't feel like it's hopeless for us to be able to get out on our own. That's why Martin Luther said about the law, he said, with its whippings, the law draws us to Christ. So remember, Paul's been asked, why would God give us the law if that's not how we were going to be saved? Paul's big answer is, because without the law, we wouldn't know we need saved. We would be deluded into thinking we're just fine on our own. So he gave us this impossible law so that we would cry out, please help me. I've seen the problem, and it's me. And I've seen the solution, and it's him. Please get me out of here. And he does. It's not that the law was bad. It's not. It's perfect. It's we who are the problem. There's still a lot we can learn from the law. There's still a lot in the law that we should do. But we don't do it or else. Because in Christ, law, the law has lost the power of the or else. Because all of the or else was poured out on him. 
He became the curse we deserve. And there comes a point in time where we have to leave the law behind. Again, Martin Luther. This is in the early 1500s when he realized what the gospel said. He gets to this point in his study, one of his studies, through the book of Galatians. And Martin Luther writes, here one must say, stop law. You've caused enough terror and sorrow. Then let the law withdraw. For it was indeed added for the sake of of disclosing and increasing sins, transgressions, but only until the point when the offspring would come. Once Jesus is present, let the law stop disclosing transgressions and terrifying. Let it surrender its realm to another, that is to the blessed offspring Christ. He has gracious lips with which he does not accuse and terrify but he speaks better things than the law, namely grace and peace and forgiveness of sins and victory over sin and death. Isn't that great? This passage, I think, can meet, can meet a need of everyone here, even though we come in with different needs. What needs can this passage meet? First, maybe if you are honest, if I asked you, are you going to go to heaven someday? And you'd say something like, I, I kind of hope so. And I said, well, why would you get there? You would say some equivalent of, I try to be a good person. I, like, I, 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 I try to, to act well. I've never really hurt anyone. Something like that. If that's your answer, understand your, your main need is to admit your need. Maybe you need to admit you are not righteous. Trust me, if you look through this thing, you'll, you'll find you're not crushing the personal righteousness thing. God is the one who gets to decide what is righteous, who is righteous, and it's not you. Maybe your greatest need is just to admit, I need rescued. Rescued from what? From my own righteousness and from the wrath of God, which will be pointed at unrighteousness. Have you ever just admitted you need saved, rescued, redeemed? If so, the next need this passage points to is the need to accept the rescue that is only offered through Jesus Christ. Jesus never disobeyed the law. He lived perfectly according to the law, the only human who has ever lived, and yet he was punished by his Father as if he had sinned every one of your sins and all of mine and the rest of the whole world as well. And Jesus said, if you will believe in him, he will rescue you from the punishment your sins deserve. What he did for you will become effective. So if you... You need to admit you're not righteous. Then you need to accept the rescue God only offers through faith in Christ. And you can do that this morning. You can just, in your heart, to God, just say, God, I understand what I need is rescued from the wrath that is to come. 
and I believe Jesus is my rescue. And now if you've made it that far, if you feel like needs one and two have been satisfied in your life and in your heart, and probably the need you have left is you need to actually believe the promises you say you have accepted. And here's what I mean by that. If you say you trust Christ to have saved you, to have forgiven all of your sins, then you need to believe something. You know what you need to believe? He has already forgiven you of all of your sins. Like white as snow, you, the way you are. Your righteousness is not based on you. It's based on him before God. Now, we will, will that turn into obedience later? Yes, hang in there. We're going to keep reading. But that voice you continually hear that tells you what a loser you are spiritually, how you're never going to get this, how you don't deserve to be loved by God, that voice you hear ain't His. That voice comes because you tend to like to hang out with that Pythagogos Jesus has freed you from. You like to walk back and get beaten up because you want to be righteous on your own. You still can't. Like you can't. It's not in you. That's why we don't hang out with that old tutor anymore. If you know you're not righteous and you have accepted Christ to, to have died in your place, and in some ways you are righteous already in front of the only, the one who, the only opinion that matters. We're going to transition now to the table where we're going to celebrate the, the incredibly high price that was paid to make what I just told you true. And pack your stuff up and, and put that stuff away while the musicians come forward and then pray with me for a minute before we go to the table. Our Father, we are a people with lots of different needs and this passage hits us in different places. There are some here who maybe have never admitted their need to be saved because they think they're okay just the way they are, the way they were made. They just need to be accepted for who they are. But God, that's not why you gave us the law. You gave us the law to show us there's tons wrong with us the way we are. We don't need to try harder. We don't need to improve a little, a little better. We need rescued from who we actually are. And so God, for those who are here and understood that need this morning, I pray that you would lead them to the second one, the need for the Savior, Jesus Christ. That you would lead them to just in their own hearts to tell you what they trust in for their salvation. That you would do a work in hearts here this morning 
for their greatest need, which is rescue. And for the rest of us, Lord, help us to believe that the responsible party in this covenant is you and you always keep your promises, which means I'm white as snow. I'm completely forgiven. I'm I'm an adopted son or daughter of the king. So I'd stop running back to that tutor who beats me. And I'd stay with the God who, who loves me while I grow. And as the guys come forward and we, we hand out the bread this morning, I thank you for what it symbolizes. The Lord Jesus, crucified under the wrath of God that should be aimed at us. We remember what you did for us, Lord Jesus. Commune with us now in his name. Amen. talked a lot this morning and we talk a lot here in general about being being saved right? being rescued ultimately do you know what you need to be saved from God you need to be saved from God you know why the law tells us if we're not saved from the wrath of God that it is still pointed at us. That's that's the deal you are in without rescue. If my behavior is good enough, I'll earn blessing from God. If it's not good enough, I'll earn the curse of God, the wrath of God. Left to your own behavior, the wrath of God is what you're headed for. But a couple weeks ago, we read this in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming the curse for us. That's what we celebrate here. That's why he died, because someone had to be punished, because God is just, he's not a liar. And Jesus became the curse instead of you. The greatest shield that has ever been invented was Jesus Christ himself shielding you from the wrath of God. And we hide ourselves in him by faith. We do this for the one who became the curse for us. Oh God, how much of your wrath I have earned. How much of the curse I deserve. And but for the one who earned none, who deserved none, but for him, that's where I would be headed. But Jesus became the curse for me, for us.
we worship you and remember him for becoming our curse while the cup comes around. Amen. In, in one of our founding documents in this country, in the Fifth Amendment, the Bill of Rights to our Constitution, we're protected from something that's called double jeopardy, which is not what happens at the end of the game show. It's protection from being punished for the same crime twice. You know why we have that protection? Right, so the government can't punish you for something, let you out, arrest you again, and punish you again because you did that thing they already punished you for. You know why we have that? Because it's wrong. And we all know that's wrong. But we have a real hard time believing God is not at least as just as the Bill of Rights. If the wrath you deserve has already been punished, God has no right to punish you more. He doesn't have any left. It's not that you don't deserve it. Of course you do. It's that it was already punished. How awesome is that? We do this in remembrance of him. Thank you for being here this morning. If you would uh, be willing to stay and help uh, decorate a little, cut some things out, even if you're good with scissors, don't run with those. Uh, you could stay and help. Uh, they've got most of it done, but they could use a little help. All right, love you guys. See you next week.